Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We want all of our conversations and our life experience to glorify you. We pray you'll join us today that we can see you more clearly. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And uh, also, this is the last lesson. We're doing lesson number 13 in our quarterly background characters in the Old Testament. Uh, The lesson this week is entitled uh, Baruch. Uh, building a legacy in a crumbling world. Uh, and that means next week we're starting a new quarter. And if you haven't got a new quarterly, they're available over at the church. And the new quarter is Jesus Wept, the Bible and Human Emotions. Wow. Somebody read our memory text, which is Isaiah 8.20. If you have to read it, if you don't already know it. To the law. To the testimony. If they speak not according to this word. It is because there is no light in them. Yes, I was going to say, this is a great old text, and I was going to ask how many of you have memorized this as a kid, but since you all recited it, I now know. Yes, this is one of our memory verses when we were children. To the law and to the testimony, they speak not according to the the word, there is no light in them. Um, The question is, we now know what it says, what does it mean? What does it mean? Think about the meaning, what does it mean? Any thoughts, what does it mean? We've quoted this, we've, we've, I mean, until I asked the question, you probably thought I know exactly what it means. <laughs> now that I've asked the question, what does it mean? Yes. Well, Jesus is the light of the world, and so if it doesn't meet up to what Jesus is, then it can't be the truth. Okay, I like that. Very nicely, yeah. Uh, of course, if it contradicts Jesus, it's not going to be true. Isn't that true? Yeah, I like that. Is that how it's generally applied? Yeah. You know, to the law and to the testimony, to the law into the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, there is no light in them. So how is it usually? How about this word or the word? This word. This word. To the law and to the testimony. Speak not according to this word, there's no light in them. Um, So if they speak not according to the scriptures, is that what it means? If they contradict scriptures? How about if someone does not accept the seventh-day Sabbath? They're not speaking according to the law. Does that mean there's no light in them? Well, then what does this text mean? It it says to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to the word, it's because there is no light in them. Which law? Which law? Well, certainly the Ten Commandments should be included, huh? So if they they reject the Sabbath, then they still have light. What's the testimony? What's the testimony? That's the book's... The other books of Old Testament Scripture. No. I, I've always heard that was the ten of books of testimony to the church. Oh, no. Was this was written uh, by Isaiah. Right, but I'm saying I was told, I have been told through the years that it was a testimony. Ah. Testimonies that we know of. Some people um, have put forth that this means the, the little red, red books. The testimonies of the church and stuff, yeah. Yeah, the testimonies, volume 1 through 10. <laughs> Of course, I don't think Isaiah knew about those. So, again, we know what it says. What does it mean? If somebody doesn't accept the state of the dead, they have a different view on that than the Scripture teaches. Is it because Do they have no light in them, or can they have light? I can hear some people saying, yes. Just because... A person doesn't have light about a topic doesn't mean that there's no light at all. So anytime when they would speak when it's not according to 
what we know and understand and the Bible teaches as truth, then that's not light. But that doesn't mean that everything that comes out of the mouth is not light. <laughs> have, you seen it? Yeah, have you seen it applied this way? Well, if they don't accept this doctrine, if they don't accept this, this uh, perspective, if they don't accept this Sabbath, or then, then they have no light. You can't listen to them. That comes from a problem assumption that, that we have all the light that there is. And, and we can we can dictate uh, who does and doesn't have light. There was a day that I would never read a book unless it was written by a Seventh-day Adventist person because I was raised with the saying that there might be some false teachings in there and you don't want to get led astray, so you don't read anything except those that are... And then when I first read some books by other people, I was like, wow, they, he has some insight here that I've never heard before. I was surprised. It's like Mark Twain said... When he was growing up, he said, the older I got, I, could, I couldn't believe how much more my dad kept learning. <laughs> you know, isn't that how it is? You know, it's like, whoa, we, we've had this idea that only here all truth resides in maybe the affiliation that we grew up with. And I don't think this is unique to Seventh-day Adventist people. I think most organizational churches have this kind of built-in sense that we're the embodiment of God's people and we have the truth and outside the truth is outside of our body is error. And um, so but we're trying to understand this, this, this meaning of the scripture. To the law and to the testimony, they speak not according to this word. There's no light in them. Yes. If you go back to the beginning of Isaiah, he says, hear the word of the Lord, listen to the law of our God, and he describes it. What does he describe? He describes, um, first he talks about um, doing right, and then he talks about reasoning together, um, being kind and, and loving towards them, and, and giving the gifts to God that that he really truly wants, just you know, true justice and and stuff. So it sounds more like the law of love than it does. It, she's right. Putting it in the context of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 1, he actually, if you look at the first verses of Isaiah 1, he berates the people for feast days, for Sabbaths, for coming to church, for burnt offerings, and then he goes on to say, come reason together. You should care for the, the hungry, uh, watch out for the widow and the orphan, and, and these types of things. And so, yes, the, 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 the scripture is describing here in context a few chapters before chapter 8 that God's goal or design is the, is the law of love. Yes, Wendell. If you look at the text before it, he's, he's speaking immediately in this text to where we get our authority. And it's talking about mediums, talking to the dead, etc. And so, consequently... Um, this is not talking about the global thing. It's where do you put your authority? So how would you how, how, so how would we understand the meaning of this particular verse today? If they speak not if, to the law and to the testimony, speak not according to this. So we're talking about if we go to mediums or or does it have to be just be mediums and witches and and those types of things? Or how about people in the church? Can this apply to that? It's your authority. And if, if they're not speaking according to what God has revealed in his word, then... Okay, let, let me ask a question along those lines. Is there anyone on earth today, or through human history, other than Jesus, we'll exclude him for the moment, any other human on earth today that knows correctly everything in the Bible? No. So then, if that's the case, and they have to speak correctly on everything, then who can we trust? Nobody has any light because all of us don't understand something. 
<coughs> yes. The law and the testimony, is that, is that in reference to not picking the Old and New Testament? Uh, the law of God, like he said. Oh, that's, what we're, that's what we're exploring. Yes, right here. My good news says that the Hebrew is unclear in its interpretation of that verse. And as, as we just suggested, uh, the translation of the, in, in, in the uh, good news, the 21st, in, in reply to those who are consulting the, the, the uh, soothsayers and so on, it says, you are to answer them, listen to what the Lord is teaching you. Don't listen to mediums, and what they tell you will do no good. Okay, so, so it's, it's not this rigid, absolutist rule. Is, is it more along the lines of, we're all in a journey, and it depends on whether you're moving toward the light and following the truth and have a heart that loves the truth and wants to grow in the truth, or if you're, has your heart been closed to truth and you won't, and you won't follow. Is, is that more along what he's teaching? Well, in that in mind, what about Martin Luther? The reformer. Did he accept the Sabbath? No. Listen to what, what's, uh, what we find in the book Great Controversy, page 120. Foremost among those who were called to lead the church from the darkness of popery into the light of a purer faith was Martin Luther, zealous, ardent, and devoted, knowing no fear but the fear of God and acknowledging no foundation for religion, religious faith but the Holy Scriptures. Luther was a man for his time. Through him, God accomplished a great work in reformation of the church and the enlightenment of the world. Now, did he uh, have all doctrinal points correct? Should, should, should people have listened to what Luther was saying back then? Was he, was he speaking uh, a light to help bring people out of darkness? But did he have every point correct? No. Yes? This is something very interesting. When you read Thomas More, who argued against Martin Luther, he says, if you follow Luther's doctrine, you will have to keep the seventh-day Sabbath. And, and, of course, Thomas More was right. That's right, Yeah. But truth like light is progressive. Okay, that's the next point. Yes, this is what we're saying. Is this what the text means? That those who have light grow in the light. They follow the light. They have a hard attitude that love the truth rather than those who have a rigid set of rules, formalism, and set up their their doctrinal belief system and, and then just defend that and there's no more growth. Is that what's going on? Well... Let's, let's read this. This is out of um, the fourth volume of Spirit of Prophecy, page 186. Listen to this. We shall not be accepted and honored of God in doing the same work that our fathers did. Think that through. We will not be accepted in doing the same work that our fathers did. Listen to what it says. We do not occupy the position which they occupied in the unfolding of truth. In order to be accepted and honored as they were, we must improve the light which shines upon us, as they improve that which shone upon them. We must do as they would have done had they lived in our day. Luther and the Wesleys were reformers in their time. It is our duty to continue the work of reform. If we neglect to heed the light, it will become darkness, and the degree of darkness will be proportioned to the light rejected. Do you like that idea? Now, I'm telling you, I, I find that quite inspirational. We are to be growing in the light. We are not to accept the truths that were revealed for a generation before ours and simply rest satisfied that that is it. We are to take that and we are to develop it and advance it. And, and remember, how big is the gap between an infinite God and finite humanity? How big is the knowledge gap? So we can never come to the point to say, well, we've arrived. There's, there's no, more, no, more, no more growth and development to do. Yes. 
Uh, in the German, where it says light, it says Morgenbrot, which is the morning light. So it's like the dawning. If we follow the law and the testimony, there is a continual dawning of light. It reminds me of the Malachi text, the sun of righteousness rising with healing in his rays. You know, the light keeps getting brighter and brighter and brighter until one day we see him face to face. And through alternative future, we will still for eternity grow in our understanding, in our knowledge, because he's infinite and we're finite. So there's always more to grow. So what about today? Are we growing as a people? Or have we rest satisfied? Have we put up our, our doctrinal defenses? Do we resist advancing light? How about 2,000 years ago when Christ came? The light, the light's all men, it says. In John chapter 1, he is the light which will lighten all men. Religious leaders in his day, how did they, how did they deal with the light he tried to bring? Did they, they wanted to put it out. They wanted to snuff out the light. They wanted to stand firm. We know Moses. We have Moses. We want to stand firm. Yes. It, it seems to me our church has the same problem as the Catholic Church. They've been teaching some things for a couple thousand years. How are you going to say, we were wrong? It's very difficult for an organization to say, oh, we've got new light now. Yeah, but, but, but I don't, you know, in the, in the case of the Catholic uh, and, and, the, and the Reformation, there was a lot of things that had to be thrown off because there was a lot of pagan infections there. Much of what we've had is not necessarily need to be thrown off, it just need to be further developed and advanced. And it becomes darkness when we refuse to advance. For instance, the Jewish nation. They had all the symbolic system, which didn't need to be so-called thrown away and said it was wrong. It needed to be rightly understood in the light of what Jesus was going to interpret and, and bring its meaning. And I think that's kind of where we stand. As much of this needs to be just re-understood in a greater light and a greater perspective, rather than just simply saying, well, this is completely wrong, like indulgences or you know saints and things like that. Yeah. Except. Some of the things that we've been taught our whole lives really aren't correct. And whenever you do bring out, like, about the wrath of God, about the judgment and all these things, that people are like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, you're getting off the deep end here. That We don't believe like that. That's not how we believe. And that's a great point, I think, where the wrath of God is needing to be re-understood and redefined rather than saying there is no such thing at all. See, there is no really biblical place for indulgences that you can actually pay money to excuse sins, and you can actually pay money ahead of time and get a clearance pass to heaven even if you rape your neighbor's wife. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. There is no, there's no way to reinterpret that. That just needs to be whoop, thrown out. Okay? But, wrath, but wrath that you're saying is, is, is presented with a wrong connotation and a wrong idea. We can't throw out, well, there's no such thing as wrath. We have to take the biblical definition and understand God's wrath is letting go. So we redefine or enlighten ourselves further on that concept. So we keep the idea, but we make it pure as Jesus revealed it to be. Well, the judgment, when you bring up the judgment, it's God being judged. I'm like, what in the world are you talking about? It's, you know, no, that, I mean, I've talked to people that I have to stop talking to them. Because they think I'm off now on a call thing. Well, that, but that's why you have to ask them questions instead of telling. You have to say, hey, when, you know, fear God and give glory to him. The hour of his judgment has come. And then put it to Romans chapter 3 and say, what did it start? And you lead them to come up with the idea on their own. Yeah. Uh, Russell. Well, my point was there is still one uh, fundamental vestige of paganism affecting the church. And that's the, the nature and character of God. That's right. 
That's right, the heart. And when we talk about the Reformation, and this is what I believe for our church and what it was called to do to complete the Reformation, Russell just nailed it. If you look at historic, um, the historic Dark Ages, the God construct, while, while the Reformation got rid of a lot of the peripheral baggage that we were just mentioning, the God construct in, in the, in the uh, papal system is a God who has to have Jesus, Mary, and all the saints <clears throat> working on him in order to, to earn or get forgiveness, mercy, grace, they plead uh, for, for, for some, some good favor coming from the Father. Protestantism, while it's gotten rid of a lot of the periphery, still has at its heart a God who needs Jesus to plead to him. Uh, my blood, my blood, I've paid the price, I've, I've, I've assuaged your wrath, I've, I've taken all the punishment on me that you would mete out. I've been, uh, as <clears throat> some of the people in our own uh, church have written, uh, I've been executed by you, Father. The Father executed his son. This, is, this idea permeates still. And I think you're right. That is the heart of it all, because it was always about God, and it was going to finish up about God. And we as a people have been called to finish the Reformation and see that God is exactly like Jesus revealed him to be. So I think that's right. This is a, uh, out of the thoughts, of the Mount, thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 92. It says, The same law obtains in the spiritual as in the natural world. He who abides in darkness will at last lose the power of vision. Now think in the physical world. If you uh, take a, someone and put a blind, blindfold on them and blind them from, from birth on, or blind, they, will, they will either never, never, never develop, or if you stay in darkness long enough, you'll lose the ability to see. Spiritually, the same is true. He is shut in by deeper than midnight blackness, and to him the brightest noontide can bring no light. He walks in darkness and knows not whether he goes, because the darkness has blinded him. 1 John 2.11 Through persistently perishing evil, willfully disregarding the pleadings of divine love, the sinner loses the love for God. The desire for, for God, the very capacity to receive the light of heaven. Notice what's happening. When we sin, something's changing in us. We become duller. Our senses become uh, less sensitive. We can't see. We can't discern. We lose the capacity to receive the light of heaven. The invitation of mercy is still full of love. God is still merciful. He's still inviting. He's still calling us. The light is shining as brightly as it first dawned upon the soul. Think about somebody who has stayed in darkness so long, they've lost vision, and they come out into the midday sunshine. They can't see any of it, but the sun is shining just as bright as ever. The truth coming from God's kingdom is shining just as bright as ever. But people who persisted in darkness have obscured their ability to see the light. Um, But the voice falls on deaf ears, the light on blinded eyes. No soul is ever finally deserted of God given up to his own ways so long as there is any hope of his salvation. That should give you great courage. God will never let go as long as there's any hope. Man turns from God, not God from man. That's powerful. Our Heavenly Father follows us with appeals and warnings and assurances of compassion until further opportunities and privileges would be wholly in vain. The responsibility rests with the sinner. By resisting the Spirit of God today, he prepares the way for a second resistance of light when it comes with mightier power. Thus he passes from one stage of resistance to another until at last the light will fail to impress and he will cease to respond in any measure to the Spirit of God. Then even the light that is in thee has become darkness. The very truths we do know, has become so perverted as to increase the blindness of the soul. 
Listen to that. You persist in this and you reject the advancing light, the very truth that you once know gets so twisted around that it makes your mind even darker. And you can see this exactly in those who crucified Christ. They had light. They had truth. They had, remember what Paul says, what, what advantage is there in being a Jew? One in every way. We have all the feast days, all the scriptures, all these things to enlighten. They had all that light, but they rejected the advancing light. The advancing light of Christ when he came. And when they rejected the advancing light, then what they had became even darker, and they used that as, as, as a reason to crucify Christ. They wanted him off the cross to keep the Sabbath. So here they are, uh, wanting to kill the, the Lord of the Sabbath to keep the Sabbath. How dark had they gotten? You see? I remember he said, no light in them. No light in them. Yep, no light in them. So, Sunday's lesson. Let's, uh, let's move into Sunday's lesson. It says, the fir- first paragraph, it says, Baruch's world was constructed around certain political, economic, and religious realities that dominated the nation at that time. Politically, politically speaking, the country of Judah was chafing under the yoke of Babylonian domination. Strong na- nationalistic undercurrents affected all areas of society. People wanted to be free of Babylon. Economically, things were going quite well, at least for a sector of the population growing wealthier by exploiting the poor. And of course, there was the religious system of ancient Judah, which was to form the foundation for all the society. As I read that, uh, the, the sentence that first popped out at me, and, and as I was reading this, I'm thinking about our situation today. Did, did, did it sound similar, the nationalistic? And, and I, what do you think about the strong nationalistic undercurrents? Do we today have trends of strong nationalistic undercurrents? Should we, as Christians, be patriots to a government? Should we be nationalistic? 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Or John 17.4-19 This is Jesus praying to his Father. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And what does Hebrews tell us where our citizenship lies? We are to be patriots of a different kingdom, aren't we? Are we to be patriots of an earthly government? Oh, boy, that's really cutting home, isn't it? Oh, it makes you uncomfortable, doesn't it? Very uncomfortable, yeah. And remember, I spent eight years in the U.S. Army. Very proud to serve. Very proud. But as I read these scriptures, um, how can we have our heart's loyalty tied to a government that we as a people know is going to do what? Which nation on earth is going to lead the world to form the image of the beast? How can we be loyal? If you think it's happening, listen to this. Somebody, actually yesterday I got an email from someone who, who forwarded me a link to an online Newsweek. You've heard of Newsweek, the magazine article? And the link is in our notes for this week, so you can go and read it. It just came out this week, this week Newsweek article. And the, and the title of the article is called One Nation Under God. One Nation Under God. And it's about the agenda of the Christian right in America 
for the next presidential election and how they're going to rally forces for the next presidential election. I'm going to read you one paragraph, and then you can read the whole article because the link's online if you'd like. In context of this idea, should we be patriots? As Christians, are we called to loyalty to an earthly government, or is our citizenship in heaven and our loyalty is to all peoples of earth? We are to be God's ambassadors to the whole world. Listen to this. Gay marriage and abortion used to predictably drive religious voters to the polls. As recently as 2004, when evangelicals were credited with re-electing George W. Bush, sex and sexual mores defined the sides in the cultural wars, but no longer. As the economy has become the political priority for liberals and conservatives alike, the traditional family values issues have been blunted, not in their importance to the individuals, but as weapons in their political theater. What's motivating religious conservatives now, says Campalo, you've heard of Tony Campalo? Okay. Is a vision of America as God's own special country. And a free market capitalism as crucial to the nation's flourishing. Everyone who doesn't see things this way according to this perspective is a socialist or a communist. This is a quote from Campalo. Pinkos who are subverting America under the auspices of the President of the United States, he says, um, the marriage between evangelicalism and patriotic nationalism is so strong that anybody who is raising questions about loyalty to the old laissez-faire capitalist system is ex post facto unpatriotic, un-American, and by association, non-Christian. See what's happening? This is what's coming. Right now, watch for it. There's going to be the conservative right is going to marry together Christian values and national patriotism. Yes? In um, the great controversy, Mrs. White talks about as this Holy Spirit is withdrawn from the earth, there will be a polarization and things will be described as being strongly on one side or the other. Right now, if you do not strongly support the gay rights and the gay agenda, then you hate them, and you're described as being hate speech. But what you're describing is another arena in which things are described as being for or against... Polarized. ...in a polarized manner. Should we be patriots? Will we have... Will we be called at some point to make a decision in our loyalties between our national patriotic loyalties and our loyalties to Christ. Should we wait until that day to wrestle these issues out of our heart? Or should we prepare ourselves for that? Should we begin severing? You know, it says, uh, should we have our hearts circumcised by the Holy Spirit, cutting away those ties to the earthly things and establishing them to our heavenly kingdom? You know, Paul tells us that we should be good citizens and, and, and citizens of whatever government. And, and so you're right. There, there is going to come a point where uh, ultimately our citizen allegianceship is going to be questioned. Yes, but do you uh, believe that someone who is not a nationalist but loves God and practices his methods would be a bad citizen? And if you're not sure about this, just think about it this way. You as a Christian who put Christ first in your heart, and you really want to practice his methods in your life, and you're an American, you go and live, pick a country, China, Russia, Germany, wherever. You go pick, you're going to live somewhere. 
Are you going to have any nationalistic loyalties to the country you're now living in? You won't. Will you abide by their laws? Will you be a good citizen in that country? You see, you can be an absolutely good citizen as a Christian and still have no nationalistic ties. Obey the laws, be, be a, a good neighbor, um, be someone who's a good citizen, but your ties are not to promote the government. Your ties are not to make the U.S. stronger and more dominant than any other country in the world. Our goal is to make Christ... I mean, you look at the, 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 the apostolic church and the Roman government at the time. They didn't come out and oppose the Roman government. A, 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 a group of people who have Christ first and are not nationalistic are not going out to oppose America. We're not going out to talk against America. We're not going to de- denigrate America. We're not going to get on that polar extreme on the other because it's not really important to us. What's important to us is Christ. And we want to go out and promote Christ. And our conversations are about Christ and our life lives about Christ and we want God's kingdom to go forward. And so we don't get caught up in these political intrigues. What, what, one of Satan's greatest strategies is to take Christian energy, Christian resources, and divert them away from the gospel commission to lighten the world with the good news about Jesus Christ. That's the gospel commission. To win hearts over to God's kingdom. To free people from fear and selfishness to a kingdom of love. That's our commission. But he diverts us instead to political agendas. To put our money into getting people elected, to getting the right judges in office, getting the right presidents, getting the right senators, getting the right laws passed. Uh, and ultimately to taking away people's freedoms so they behave like we do. That's where this is going. And this is the image of the beast that's forming, yes. World War II, Germany was a great nationalistic state. We had Seventh-day Adventists living in Germany, a great number of Seventh-day Adventists. They had the same problem at that time as we're anticipating in this time. And how did they respond? They tended to go underground. Because if they didn't, they ceased to exist. Actually, in the early days before the war broke out, the Seventh-day Adventist coal porters took Hitler's literature and spread it with their Seventh-day Adventist material from city to city in Germany. Did you know that? Historical fact. And the Seventh-day Adventist church, because of that, was protected for many years compared to other religious organizations and, you know, they, they actually liked what a lot of what Hitler was doing. And the church in Germany split over those issues. And many of them liked it. Hitler was a vegetarian. I mean, you know, he's eating the right food. <laughs> you know, he was health reformer. And it just shows you, you know, you can do certain behaviors, but, but with the heart, if you're not practicing God's methods, it's really about the heart, the, the methods you practice. Um, where is our Lloyd? So the lesson asks us to read uh, Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11. So this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and, pro- and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates and worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I, the, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. 
Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. What do you think about that? What's going on? What was their mindset? What's the mindset of the people? What were they saying? And what were they doing? They were doing all these detestable things. What were they saying? How could they do these things and have peace? How could they do these things and feel secure? What was the, what was the psychology of their mind? It tells us right in the text. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple, the temple, the temple. What, is that? What, were they, what are they saying with that? We have the real temple, the real God. We own him. We can pull him out. It's like, you know, we can pull him out of his cage and sick him on anybody we want. <laughs> we got the biggest dog in this fight. I mean, this is, this is how they were thinking. You know, isn't that, isn't that all right? We got the temple, we got the temple, we got the temple. And as long as we stay close to the temple, he's going to protect his temple. So we're in proxy to the temple. We're going to be protected. So what about us today? Do we do the temple, the temple, or rather the Sabbath, the Sabbath, the Sabbath? We got the Sabbath. We're protected. We're safe. We got the Sabbath. Do we do the exact same thing today? Yes. The last half of that, verse 11. Why do you think God said, but I have seen it, or I'm watching? Thoughts about that? You ever tell your kids, you better watch out, you better not cry? Because <laughs> Santa knows who's been naughty or nice. We all know that's mom and dad. Right? I'm watching. Why are the parents watching? protect why is he watching aren't you watching your kids why and don't you sometimes I tell them don't forget I'm watching I got my eye on you <laughs> got eyes in the back of my head <laughs> why are we watching I think he's watching hey guys th- you're not doing this without me watch doesn't it encourage us even when we're being tempted to do wrong are we less likely to do wrong if mom's watching if you're a teenager and you're thinking about doing something naughty with, a, with another kid, uh, but mom's in the room. Dad's in the room. Is it likely it's going to happen? No, it's not going to happen with him in the room, is it? No, I'm watching. It protects us yes. from the effects of bad behavior. And the temptations of our own hearts until we can mature and grow up to actually not even have it in our heart to want to do those things anymore. I think these are saying, hey guys, I'm watching. Remember, I'm here, I'm watching. You're not alone. Don't do these things. But I think some could put the other view of God on it. I'm watching. And here's the other view. <laughs> I love this little analogy. <laughs> the view of the police officer following you in the car. <laughs> yeah, you're driving downtown and a cop pulls in behind you and he starts following you. And he's watching you. What kind of, what do you experience now? You start getting stressed and anxious. You're getting paranoid. Start checking everything off in your mind. Do I have a burned out taillight that I register? Get my registration going. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, the, and the more he's watching, don't you get stressed more and more? I'm watching. I'm watching. I was on my way home last night down 153 and I came around the corner. And there was a cop with a radar gun watching me. He was watching. And I was glad I was doing the speed limit. You know, I was re- very relieved about that. Um, does it encourage you to see God? And I, there's a, a friend of ours who used to be a member of our class, but she's in another, uh, moved on and is another church now. So she can't attend here. 
but uh, she told me she was in the ABC one day and, uh, and was uh, uh, actually looking at my book when it was still sold in the ABC. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, she said a pastor of a local church came up and said, oh, don't get that book. And uh, well, why not? Oh, uh, that book teaches bad things about God. Really? What, 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 what? He said, well, don't you know, this is a pastor, don't you know that God is a great police officer in the sky? <laughs> this is what a pastor told her. Is that how you see God, the great police officer in the sky? Well, the good news, of course, is if that's the case, that we have Jesus as our heavenly radar jammer. <laughs> So that the Father cannot see exactly how fast we're going. We've got the, you know, the robe of righteousness protecting us from that, that, that scrutiny. Yes. Well, I can see how you get, we get that idea because, you know, it says that uh, if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father on our behalf. Jesus Christ the righteous. In our defense. It depends on which translation, yes. Some translations put it that way, don't they? As though we need someone to defend us. Yes, the first John text, uh, I would that you sin not, but if you do, uh, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the righteous. Some translate it that way. Then they will take that one text by itself and build a theology. But don't we have to make all Scripture harmonize? All scriptures, uh, all scriptures given by God is useful for instruction and dialogue? Okay, John, uh, John 16, 24. Jesus who is speaking to his disciples, says, I have used a lot of metaphors and parables and dark speech. Now I'm going to tell you plainly about the Father. Then he tells them. Right afterwards, the disciples respond. You can read it right in John 16. Right after the disciples respond, he said, Now you're speaking plainly. No more paraphrasing, no more, no more riddles, no more parables, no more dark speech. And he says, Jesus said, I will not pray the Father for you because the Father loves you himself. There's no need. Okay, we got it very plain out of the words of Jesus, and the apostles themselves endorse this as this is plain speech, no more metaphors. So how do we then take that one and balance it with what we got over in John that we have one that prays the Father on our behalf? Or Romans chapter 8, uh, starting verse 31, um, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare us son but gave him up, how will we not along with him also give us all things? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus? He is at the Father's right hand and is... Also, also, in addition to interceding for us. So Jesus is interceding for us in addition to who? The Father. Father. So the scriptures are teaching us that the Father and the Son, and if you go back in chapter 8 a little earlier, I think um, verse 22, um, it's the Holy Spirit is also interceding for us with groans and utterances we cannot understand. So we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit all interceding for us. So this idea that you mentioned comes from that other view of God, that infection that puts God in some ugly way. So, um, But when we put it together, we realize, what well, can't mean that. It has to mean something else. What does it mean? So you go to different translations, you'll find he's not praying to the Father in our defense. We have, in fact, an advocate with the Father. That's what it says in other versions, an advocate with the Father. An advocate standing beside the Father. An advocate along with the Father. In other words, the Father is our advocate. We have another one. Jesus, the Christ, the righteous, is also our advocate with the Father. So we have an, instead of reading it as one working on the Father, we have the Father and the Son as our advocates working together for us. Yes? Years ago when I started on the responsibility of teaching critical, and I asked my mother, what's the most important thing you can teach a young child? And she said, everyone needs a sense of God's presence. 
that in all of life's difficulties, everything that happens to you, you always have someone there to comfort you, to help you, to guide you. And that sense of God's presence is a comfort unless you have guilt that makes you feel that you're being condemned. I, I like it very much. So finishing up our analogy then, um, because we know that God, God's watching. We have it right here. He's watching. And if he's not the great police officer in the sky following us around to find out every wrong thing we're doing, then what do we do? And the analogy I like is, of course, Lance Armstrong. When he's out there on the Tour de France, he has a car following him everywhere he goes. And why is the car following him with his team in it? So if he gets a flat, they'll repair it. If he falls and scrapes himself, they'll bandage his wound and get him back going. God is following us constantly to assist us, to hate us, to, to restore us, to protect us, to get us back on the road to salvation. He is following us to help us. So we have his presence there, not in some way to, oh, police officer to give us a ticket and, and write down our wrongs, but to protect, heal, and restore us when we stumble and fall. Isn't that better? Yeah, absolutely. Monday's lesson. Uh, the first paragraph, uh, it talks about, I'm not even sure if I want to do this, we have other things to, to go into, um, but it talks about uh, inspiration. It tells us here that, that Jeremiah did not write the book of Jeremiah, he dictated basically the book of Jeremiah, and the scribe Baruch wrote down the, uh, the actual uh, text of the, of the book of Jeremiah. Does that cause anybody any concerns with Scripture to realize that the, that the Scripture wasn't written necessarily by the, the prophet? Jeremiah Paul also used to scribe, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, she said maybe Jeremiah couldn't read and write. Thought inspired. Thought inspired, yeah. Yeah. Does it trouble you or not? You're all peace with that? Is the Bible a direct dictation from God? No. So when you understand that, it gives us very, very great liberty. Everything you read in Scripture, you must be asking, okay, it's not the words that are important, it's the idea, the concept. What is the meaning? What is the message? What is the, the idea that's being uh, communicated here? How do I understand it? How do I apply it? So it gives you freedom to start thinking rather than uh, simply reading a, a list of, uh, of instructions that you have to adhere to without thinking. Um, Tuesday's lesson, it says, uh, Baruch reads Jeremiah to the people, and then the leadership inquires, what is he teaching? How does leadership respond to the message? They have, bring it on. Let's hear it. Come into the king. Read. Let's, let's find out what you're teaching. How does leadership respond to the message? Anybody know? King hears it, reads it, and what's the king do? Cuts up the scroll and burns it. Why would the king do this? Why? I mean, obviously he didn't like the message. What was the message he didn't like? Was it you're going to die? The whole city's going to be destroyed. Or was it the whole city is going to be destroyed if you persist on this course? But if you humble yourself and accept Babylonian rule, you won't be destroyed. Humble yourself. Stop your nationalistic attempts to to free yourself from Babylonian uh, oversight and supervision. Accept their um, uh, their protectorate, if you will, and humble yourself, and you'll you'll be okay. So it wasn't you'll necessarily be destroyed, was it? Wasn't there a way out in this message? But the way out was the path of humility. The king said, no, 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 we are the temple, the temple. I mean, we've got the temple. I mean, hello? So no, we don't have to humble ourselves. And so they cut it up. We don't like this message. It's not going the way we're, we want to go. If we have the truth about God to share, um, and it talks about in the lesson uh, that Baruch and Jeremiah took great risks. They went in before the political powers. Political powers didn't like what they said. So now, for a while, Baruch and Jeremiah are on the outs. Their political you know, don't associate. They're in trouble. 
No, no, no respect left in the, in the powers that be in their country. If we have truth about God to share, should we share it even though we know it won't be popular or some people will turn against us? Should we share it? Yay, nay, maybe, no? Yes, okay, I mean, I'm getting conviction, yes. Okay, then how do you balance it with this statement from Jesus? Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under, under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So do we share, or do we not share? We share. Where, how do you balance it? Where do you draw the line on, it's time to stand up and share the truth we know, it's time not to share our truth and not, not put it out there? Uh, Lisa and then Wendell. Don't you just look at how Jesus shared the truth with people? He was very gentle in his message and often used parables and didn't necessarily attack directly. And gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You are, you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you whitewashed sepulchers, clean on the outside but full of dead men's bones. But he wasn't like that all the time. Oh, no, he wasn't. <laughs> no, so. That was a rare. You vipers. You of your father the devil. Not all the time. No, 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 but. But there were times. Well, that's what you did. There are times when that's appropriate, but I don't think in a general sense Jesus was like. No, he didn't go to the people and speak that way. He stayed away from Jerusalem a lot of the time and talked to the common people because he knew what he was going to face in Jerusalem. So this is my point. Notice what Jesus did. He spoke to the people and to the masses gently, showing the beauty of God's character, and they they responded, and, and the masses came. But leadership didn't like the following. Leadership didn't like the movement. And so when he dealt with leadership, though, was it often confrontational? Sometimes he didn't say anything. Sometimes he wouldn't answer them. Sometimes he tried to share truth, but they didn't like it. Right. I'm the bread of life. I've, I'm, the, I'm the man that's come down from heaven. If you would have accepted me, you would have eternal life, but you haven't accepted me. Are my words not plain to you? Can you not understand what I'm saying? This is how he talked to them. Uh, no, Wendell. Yeah. In, life, in matters of life and death, um, the, the concept of their blood be on us, it's important to remember to speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love. Okay, speak the, absolutely. Speak the truth in love. And I think we find that with Jesus. Uh, when Jesus was having these confrontations, I suspect that there was a great compassion in his voice because we know when he turned over the money tables and all those with guilty consciences ran away, the children stayed behind and weren't frightened. So imagine going into our sanctuary over here and, and, you, and you've been convicted that the leadership is, is doing something inappropriate and so you take some pews and you turn them over and throw them down such that all the deacons and elders and pastors run out of the church but the children aren't frightened. That would be quite a feat, wouldn't it? That's what Jesus did, yeah. His most scathing rebukes were stated with tears in his voice. Yes. He, he, going to next quarter's lesson, um, two episodes in which he... He cried. He cried over Jerusalem. Why? Because they were rejecting him. He's, he, he could not bear the loss of his people. And the second time he, he mentions he cried, he cried over Lazarus' tomb. Did he cry because he was just sad because Lazarus died? He knew what he was doing. He was going to be raising him to, to life. He was crying because the people were so blind that they could not see. I agree with you. I agree completely. Um, my, my thoughts on this, where do you draw the line? Do you share to people who don't want to hear? Do you force people to sit down, tie them down, and listen to what you have to say when their hearts are closed and they don't want to hear you? Or do you share to people who want to hear? You share to those who are open to be taught. And so I share to people whose minds are open, people who have made it clear they don't want to hear. I don't force them to hear. I don't, I don't make them listen. So that's kind of where I draw the line. And then with Christ, that's the way it was. And you notice he didn't go to preach to the leadership. 
they kept coming to him to try and trap him. And that's where the confrontations would occur. Yeah. Yes. I like the way that you put it when you say, speak the truth in love and leave people free. I just feel like we need to continually live and speak the truth, but that's different from badgering someone or trying to force it down their throat. You know, you just, you try to live it and you try to speak it and just move about in those kind of ways while leaving people free. And without arrogance. You have to be really careful not to make offend people by saying, I know the truth and you don't. Yeah, it's, a, it's sometimes difficult, isn't it, Wendell? Mrs. White made very critical comments about certain religious entities in the great Con- book of Great Controversy, and yet she's in admonition to the leaders of our church. She said, there should be no rude thrust. And she said, particularly, we should stop all our rude thrust towards the Catholics. A lot of good people in the Catholic Church. A lot of very good people. Okay. Let's look at uh, Friday's lesson, because we're running out of time. So let's jump to Friday's lesson and look at the second paragraph. This is um, out of Prophets and Kings, page 437. It says, the spirit of opposition to, re- to reproof, the opposition to re- in other words, somebody's coming and saying, hey, you're heading down the wrong path, it's time for reformation, and there's opposition to that reproof. The spirit of opposition to reproof that led to the persecution and imprisonment of Jeremiah exists today. Would that only be 100 years ago, or do you think it might even exist still today? Okay, many refuse to heed repeated warnings, preferring rather to listen to false teachers who flatter their vanity and overlook their evil doing. In the day of trouble, such will have no no sure refuge, no help from heaven. God's chosen servants should meet with courage and patience the trials and sufferings that befall them through reproach, neglect, and misrepresentation. They should continue to discharge faithfully the work God has given them to do, ever remembering that the prophets of old and the Savior of mankind and his apostles also endured abuse and persecution for the word's sake. What do you all think about this passage? Any application to our lives today? If we're listening. If we're listening. What do you think it means in the middle of the, of the passage when it says, in the day of trouble, those who have, re- have been opposed to reproof um, will have no sure refuge no help from heaven. Why will they have no help from heaven? They've already rejected it. They don't want it. Progressive blindness. Progressive blindness. Okay, all those things are true. But what kind of help is heaven provide? Does heaven provide? What's the help that heaven provides us? Though we live in the war- world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. So this war that we're battling is a war where? In the mind. And we have divine weapons that demolish these strongholds. What are the weapons of God? Truth. Truth love presented in liberty or freedom. So question what help does heaven provide through the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and the spirit of love and the spirit that brings God's methods to our hearts. So if these people have already rejected truth, rejected God's methods, that is the weapons that God provides to free the mind, to heal the heart, to to restore godliness within, why is there no help from heaven? There's nothing left to give them. They've already rejected the help. Yes. Peace like war is waged. Peace like war is waged. It's interesting because Christ said, I did not come to bring peace, but I, brought, I came to bring a sword. Sword of truth. Yes, uh, the sword of truth. The sword that will sever 
families, mothers from daughters and, and so forth, to sever and cut away the sort of truth that cuts through the lies that binds our minds. That is exactly the sword. And it's also the sword that the rider on the white horse has in the Revelation. He has a rider on a white horse, has a sword out of his mouth that destroys and wipes out the wicked. It's very interesting because that passage that I just quoted, the, the rider on the right, white horse with a sword that wipes out and the blood and all this kind of stuff, it's used by proponents to suggest that, see, God will use his power to destroy. He's going to come back with a sword, a sword of vengeance out of his mouth. Think that through. A rod of iron to rule the nation with yeah. But but imagine, do you think Christ is really coming back with a piece of metal sticking out of his mouth? No, this is the sword of truth. The, the mouth speaks words, and, the, and it's the, the sword that we, we read about in, in Hebrews that has a, a double edge that cuts, the, cuts through to the, to the heart. And this is why what destroys them in the end, because the truth burns through the lies. To leave you to meditate on this week, he says in this paragraph that many people put false teachers in front of them to flatter their vanity. Um, some have accused our class of being that. So the question is, how do you tell? How do you tell whether you, you are involved in something that's flattering your vanity and false teaching, and how do you tell from the truth? What methods do you use to, to discern those differences? Yes? It, uh, it affects your life. You change. You become different. Um, you begin to regard people as important, and you love them, and I mean, it just affects who you are. So one method is the experience that we have. Do we become more loving, more gracious, more patient, more Christ-like, more concerning to others? Is our life becoming more like Jesus? That's one. And Ellen White talks about the, the the three main threads that we have to tell truth, one of them being experience. But it has to harmonize with others. So one is experience. I like that. Yes. How else do we tell? The second half of that sentence says, and cover their evil doing. And cover their evil doing. So if you are participating in a group that set that does not is not critical of your behavior of not of your thoughts is the group that you're participating in leading you to righteousness right behavior and against sin what evil are we accused of False teaching, that we're misrepresenting God. We're making God out to be a big marshmallow man in the sky. That we're taking away God's justice and making him an unjust God and we're overturning his, his authority and, his, and the way he runs his universe. That's, that's what we're accused of. Mm-hmm. But, but, I, but back to, to, to the point for you to, to meditate on this week. How do you tell? There are lots of competing teachings out there. Satan is the father of lies. His power is to get us to believe distortions about God. And Romans tells us when that happens, our minds become darkened and depraved. So there's a, there's a real consequence to not holding to the truth, to accepting distortions. How do we tell? One is the experience. What else? Well, back to our memory verse for today. To the law and to the testimony. And what does that mean? If they don't teach the Sabbath? No, if they don't, what we said earlier, if they don't promote the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of love, as revealed in Jesus Christ, and promote those as the methods and the standards. And then science. Science. God's natural laws. Everything has to harmonize. God's, God's, God's natural laws. His universal laws. Uh, the scripture harmonized together. Experience. Yes. You can preach and preach and preach, but your actions speak so much louder than your words. Actions speak louder than words. You need to just think about if it makes sense or not. Reason. So things need to be sensible. If people ask you to turn your brain off at the church door and not think, that's a red flag. All right. Gracious Heavenly Father. 
We thank you so much for this time to study. As we go forward this week, enlighten our minds. Help us to develop that mature Christian capacity to discern the right from the wrong. Let us see you more clearly and make us effective to share the truth about your kingdom, to free more minds. Give us the wisdom and discernment to know when to share and when to keep silent, that, and that this message may, may traverse the world, and we'll see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.